Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is singer, songwriter, musician, and member of both the Rock and Roll and Songwriters Halls of Fame, Felix Cavalieri of the Rascals. In 1965, Felix formed the Young Rascals with bandmates Dino Dinelli, Eddie Brigatti, and Gene Cornish. After signing to Atlantic Records and changing their name to the Rascals, the mega-hit Good Lovin' hit number one in February of 1966. They followed with a string of hits, like I've Been Lonely Too Long, How Can I Be Sure, A Girl Like You, A Beautiful Morning, and two more number one smashes, Groovin' in 1967 and People Gotta Be Free in 1968. After the band disbanded in 1972, Felix embarked on a successful solo career with a debut solo album produced by none other than our former podcast guest, Todd Rundgren. His great autobiography, Memoir of a Rascal, details all the highs and lows of his record-breaking career, including the Rascal's triumphant journey to Broadway in 2013 with the bio-musical Once Upon a Dream, produced by our former podcast guest, Stevie Van Zandt. everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. I'm Pete Ganbarg. I'm the head of A&R at Atlantic Records, and today I am absolutely thrilled to be speaking with one of the most iconic musicians who helped create the sound of Atlantic Records in our 75-year history. And coming to us live today from his home in Nashville, Tennessee, is Felix Cavalieri from The Rascals, The Young Rascals. We're going to talk about all that stuff. But Felix, welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Well, thank you. And thank you for that wonderful compliment. Yeah, you know, it's super exciting to be talking to you today for so many reasons. But one of the reasons is we're here to celebrate the release of your autobiography, Memoir of a Rascal, which actually is coming out this week. The front cover photo of the book was taken by Linda McCartney. The foreword of the book was written by our friend and former podcast guest, Cousin Brucie. So I feel like even though you and I don't know each other, we're in the uh, company of friends. I really enjoyed reading the book because it filled in the blanks between all the hit songs we know and all the stories that we don't know. So thank you for that. And I think anyone who picks up a copy of the book and reads it not only is going to learn so much of the history that they may not know, but is also going to have a big smile on their face remembering how these songs and how this music made them feel. Before we start, some accolades that you've received in your career for your music. Five of your songs have reached the top five of Billboard's Hot 100, including three number ones, Good Love and Groovin' and People Got to Be Free. Beautiful Morning and How Can I Be Sure also went top five. In total, nine top 20 singles and six top 20 albums 
albums all released between 1966 and 1969. You were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1997. You were nominated for a Grammy in 2009 with our friend and former podcast guest Steve Cropper. You were inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame in 2009. You were inducted into something that is very near and dear to my heart because I sit on the board of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. You were inducted in 2009, the Vocal Group Hall of Fame, the Hit Parader Hall of Fame, and most recently in 2014, the Hammond Organ Hall of Fame which is all awesome and all we're going to talk about. A couple of other things before I shut up and let you talk is a couple of your songs have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame itself has a list of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Good Lovin's on that list. Groovin's on that list. You've been called the King of Blue-Eyed Soul. I love the anecdote, Felix, in the book where you talk about Otis Redding hearing you record at Atlantic and he couldn't believe that your band was white. So, so that's, that's my little intro. That's all the things we're going to talk about today. But before we get into all that, let's start in the beginning. You were born in Westchester County, New York, in Pelham in November 1942. Your parents had moved there from the Bronx. Your parents were professionals. Your dad was a dentist. Your mom was a pharmacist. What do you remember about the early days in Pelham, Felix? Oh, just uh, it was a great place to grow up. Still is a great place to grow up. You know, I've got a lot of friends there that... Uh, you know, uh, I always appreciated the fact that my parents uh, brought us to that town because we got a great education there. We were kind of, I don't know if I said it in the book, but I had to go 15 minutes to the west or east or north. I'd get beat up very easily. <laughs> they were all big towns, but we were in a safe, lovely town. And your parents were professionals. When you started getting this music bug... You know, did, did your parents look at you a little funny because, you know, you're going to be my son, the doctor, my son, the lawyer, my son, the pharmacist, right? Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, like, it's a long story, but it's a good story. And that's kind of how this thing came about, this book, you know, because we did a tour. We did a Broadway show, Once Upon a Dream, in 2013. You know, we separated, we, we broke up and et cetera, et cetera. And while we were doing this, we were doing press interviews. So the four of us would sit uh, on the stage and the press would ask us questions. And I noticed every single person had a different answer for the same question. <laughs> so I said to myself, okay, now, you know, I've done this many times as a joke, but did Custer really win or lose that battle? I, I don't know. So it hit me. I said, like, wow, you know, I could have sworn I was there, you know. That's what started. It started me to say, well, you know, at least I should document for my kids, if nothing else, what I remember. And then I decided, wait a second, with all due respect, the Rascals were only five to six years of, unfortunately, decades of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I started to write about the rest. And as far as that story goes, Pelham was a great place to grow up, yes, because of the fact that it was so close to New York, 20 minutes. And your mom, Laura, had you, from the age of five, take piano lessons. So did she sense some musicality to you, or did she think that this is just something you should be doing as a five-year-old kid growing up in Pelham? Well, I don't know, but I think what happened is she must have sensed something because I started when I was five, you know, and I started seriously when I was five because she enrolled me in a pretty good music school. It was in New Rochelle, New York, 
So she must have seen something, yes. And I read in the book that you mentioned serious piano lessons, but these were real serious piano lessons. This was three times a week for eight years. Right, yeah. Well, like I say, she wasn't kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And your mom was so serious about your piano lessons that she would single-handedly bust up your baseball games by driving her car onto the sewer grate, which was actually home plate. Correct. Can't play when the, when, the, when there's no home plate. <laughs> <laughs> you actually played Carnegie Hall as a kid. Well, because that was part of the curriculum, you know, to go down there and audition for like the piano competitions, which is a whole different world, you know, completely different. Yeah, so we played. I played with a group of other people. I didn't do it by myself, of course. And it was very interesting, very, very interesting being around that environment. And frankly, the reason that it, it didn't appeal to me is because I realized at an early age that I had some creativity and you are not allowed to have creativity with classical music. Right. You have to play what's on the page. Play it by the book. So that kind of, you know, like started my rebellious nature, which has persisted to this point. <laughs> I love the story that you tell in the book about the first day of junior high school. You're online, you meet a new friend, and he wants to know if you're a fan of rock and roll. And were you a fan of rock and roll at that point, Felix? Never heard of it. <laughs> but what'd you tell them? Yes. Oh, I, <laughs> well, you know, you, when you go to junior high, it's a mingling of different uh, elementary schools, you know, so you don't know the people that you're about to sit in your, in your homeroom with. And, you know, you don't want to be a square. I said, yeah, man, I, yeah, yeah. I had no idea what it was. But I was so fortunate, you know, because I went home, had a little transistor radio, and we had Alan Freed in those days, you know. And for those of you that don't know Alan Freed, Alan Freed really was the founder, as far as I'm concerned, of rock and roll. He had Moondog in Cleveland, which is one of the reasons why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland. I don't know if people know that story, but uh, Mr. Erdogan had a lot to do with that. uh, He he did. (laughs) Yes, he did. But anyway, I went home that evening and turned on the radio, and I I heard people playing the same instrument that I was learning but in styles that I could never dream of. And the master of that was Ray Charles. Right. You know, here you are playing the piano, but playing it in the classical style, vary by the book, as you said. And here is Alan Freed on the Moondog Matinee on the radio, and you're listening on your transistor radio, and you're hearing Ray Charles, but you're also hearing Jerry Lee Lewis, and you're hearing Fats Domino, all master piano players who are taking your instrument and showing you the possibilities of where it could go. And you can only imagine what that felt like, you know, because of the fact that, first of all, you're right about the right word masters. I mean, Little Richard, Jerry Lee, Ray Charles, even Fats Domino. I mean, it was incredible. And the impact it made on me was like, what the heck? What is this, man? So when you break it down from a technical musical point of view, I could understand it. But then when you try to inject the rhythmic part of it, that's when it really hit the right place because I immediately kind of felt what they were doing. You know, now let me see if I can do it. Let me see if I can get my hands doing it, you know? Right. And anyone who knows your music knows that you are synonymous with a style of organ playing with an organ called the Hammond B3 organ. You know, in all the interviews and podcasts that we've done, we've never had the opportunity to deep dive on the Hammond, which I'd love to do today. But 
I love the story in the book how you discovered the Hammond organ at a club in New Rochelle watching a group called the Cravens as an underage kid. Can you remember what it was like that night to look on stage and to see these massive organs? And, you know, I don't know if they had the Leslie cabinets or they didn't. But, you know, here you are. You're being called like a siren to the sea with the sound of Fats Domino and Ray Charles and Jerry Lee Lewis. But now a buddy of yours sneaks you into this club in New Rochelle and you see a bunch of Hammond B3s on stage. What was that like? Interestingly enough, it was the same person who asked me if I liked rock and roll. <laughs> became dear friends. No, uh, basically it was a club, and it was in near Rochelle, and there was a trio in there, and an organ trio, and I'm sure people nowadays know what an organ trio is. I never heard of it, but basically it's three people, a drummer, in this case a sax player, and an organ player. Now, the organ player was doing bass with his feet, He was doing rhythm with his left hand. He was doing lead when it called for it with his right hand. And he was singing. And I said, oh, my God. It's almost like a one-man band. It's an orchestra. Mm. And I heard it, and I said, you know what? That's pretty cool. That is really cool. You know, when you don't ever hear anything like that, because classical music is kind of like being Catholic, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they don't want you to go into any other denominations. You're only supposed to listen to classical music. You don't want to pollute your mind. So when I heard this, all of a sudden it was like, where have I been? You know? Right. <laughs> you it's know? A, whole, a whole new world out there. Exactly. Now I had to explore that world, the Hammond right. organ world, which right. is a very interesting world. And that world led you to Macy's in New York City looking for a Hammond organ to buy, right? That's where they were. I mean, that's the closest place that I could find where they had one. And uh, that was an experience, you know, which, as, as you say, I outlined in the book. Because, you know, like I say, these are things that I'll never forget. Right. And I read in the book that you found the Hammond organ section at Macy's and you were a little shocked to find out that the Hammond organs were going for $3,000 a piece. I was very shocked. (laughs) But then again, I mean, it was in a special room, see? And the proprietor, the salesman, you know, God, I remember Mr. Silverman, I think that was his name. He kind of knew that I couldn't afford the bench, you know? (laughs) But, (laughs) But he saw a kid coming in and he said, yeah, go ahead, go in. And it was like very, very mahogany doors, you know, and it was very kind of serious. It wasn't like you see like in a guitar store, you know what I'm saying? You walk in and here's, here's all these organs, Hammond organs. Now, you know, the first thing you have to do is, okay, how do I turn it on? They don't just turn on a switch. There's a generator that goes and it winds up the kind of thing that spins in it. And then pop, you pop the speakers on. You know, but he left me all alone in there. So I'm exploring a new universe. It was wild. It was wild. Going back to the creation of the Hammond B3, which I did a little homework because I didn't know myself. And it turns out that the Hammond was first manufactured in 1935. So when you were born, this technology was all of seven years old. And it was invented by a man named Lorenz Hammond. And basically, it's the organ itself. The Hammond and the B3 are basically the same thing. So when you hear somebody talk about a B3 and you hear somebody talking about a Hammond, they're talking about the same thing. And in order to get the sound out of the Hammond B3, 
usually the speaker is known as a Leslie cabinet. So when you have the Hammond organ and the Leslie cabinet together, that is the prototypical sound that we know, whether it's from Jimmy Smith, who arguably was the first Hammond player to inspire a generation to come after him, or one of the most famous Hammond players was Booker T from Booker T and the MG. So when you discovered this, your dad bought you a cheaper Hammond because you couldn't afford the $3,000 one. So now here you are, your dad buys you a Hammond. Do you remember playing it for the first time? Yeah, sure. You know, as I say, it was very different from that big B. You know, the Hammond series, the organ that they made in those days, they used them mostly in people's homes. And I don't think that Mr. Hammond ever, ever had an idea of how popular his B3 was going to be in all the churches in America (laughs) and maybe in the world. I don't think he really knew. But, you know, the interesting story about that, I don't know if you know about the Leslie Hammond feud. No. Well, basically, when Hammond came out, they had, you know, if you've seen a guitar amp like a Fender, they played through there, and it didn't sound good. It didn't sound good at all. Well, this gentleman, I guess his name was Leslie, came up with this box, and the box had two speaker units in it, and they swiveled, they turned. (whistles) Tops had horns which spun. The bottom had bigger speakers which spun, and you could control the speed of the... Well, what this did is it spread this sound throughout the room. Whatever room you were in, it filled all the corners because it circled like that, you know. And so I had two of them. So now I had the whole room in my command (laughs) because it was just so warm and tender sounding. And it takes the sonority part of the musical spectrum. It goes where the voices are. So if you don't have a lot of singers, you know, it fills all that space up. And it's magical. It's a great sound. Hammond didn't want the Leslie in the showroom. He threatened to pull all his franchise out if they put that Leslie speaker in there. And as years went by, somehow he was convinced he ended up buying the company. Oh, and now wow. they're synonymous with wow. one is that interesting? It's crazy. Yeah. So did you form a band in high school using the B3 no. or did you wait until you got to college? I did. Yeah, because in high school, the band that I joined was already doing like their parties and bar mitzvahs and weddings and proms and things. They were called the Swinging Six. <laughs> and it was more like an upright bass and, of course, guitar, bass, drums. And I was playing standards, you know, I was playing torch music, nightclub music, et cetera, et cetera. But again, now this is at the onset of when rock and roll was coming. So we would save a little portion of the show and they'd say, well, hey, you know how to do that whole lot of shaking going on? And I said, yeah. (laughs) Next thing you know, now the band is starting to get known for the the middle part of the show, you know? So that's how it evolved. And were you playing acoustic piano or electric organ or B3 or anything? I was playing a piano. I was playing a piano and uh, I quickly learned that I'm going to have to find some way of electrifying this thing because these darn guitars are so loud. Right. For sure. <laughs> so you went to Syracuse, you formed a band called the Esquires, and you and your oh, band... Escorts, excuse oh, the me. Escorts, the Escorts, sorry about oh, that. Oh, yes, that's all right. So no you and the Escorts <laughs> played frat parties and homecomings at Syracuse, and you loved it. You were getting the crowd moving. You know something, man? I've had so much fun playing music, and I met so many great people because at that time, Syracuse was a major football power. 
You know, Jimmy Brown had just graduated a couple of years before, and now we had Ernie Davis and John Mackey. I got to know all of these, you know, players. And it's just something that I'll never forget because when you win, uh, obviously the campus is really like rocking and rolling. And there I was, rocking and rolling with right. I remember breaking my tooth on a microphone. <laughs> It was really fun. It was almost a little bit too much fun because I forgot, oh, I have to get grades, too. Oh, my goodness. Right, and you realized that college maybe wasn't your calling, but that music was. I tell you, no, really, I had no idea. That's part of the story. When I was living on the East Coast, I used to speak at Berkeley and a lot of the different music school, and I try to tell the, you know, the young up-and-coming musicians, I had no idea I was going to be a musician. It just kind of led the path, kind of right. led me, right. you know, but sometimes it's about being in the right place at the right time. And at Syracuse, Absolutely. you met someone, you met a college friend who got you a gig playing in the Catskills. And in the Catskills is where you met Joey D. So talk about Joey D and the Starlighters <laughs> and joining Joey's band and touring Germany and having a little group from England open up for you guys. Yeah, exactly. That's what happened. Rolly Hotel is the place you're talking about in the Catskills. And for those that don't know the Catskills, it used to be the place for the New York community to go during the summer. And all the comedians would go there. A tremendous amount of Latin groups would go there. And every weekend, they would have a headliner come in to the big theater. And one weekend happened to be Joey D and the Starlighters. And that was another thing that was kind of like life-changing, you know, <laughs> to say the least. Because I met this band uh, and they met me. And I think I put this all in there, but I was playing in the teen club. I was playing in the lounge at the end of the night because the twist had just started to come into being. And so the grown-ups, you know, they would come into the place and hear, you know, rock and roll, you know. Well, their road manager came in. His name was Fat Frankie. <laughs> and he goes back and he tells Joey, he says, hey, man, there's a, there's a guy over there. He's just skinny as hell. He looks like a friggin' lizard. He sings like a brother, man. <laughs> you know? So they noticed me. And then the next thing you know, they went off to a tour of Europe and their organ player quit. He left. I think he had recently married and he wanted to go home and be with his, uh, his wife. And so they called me. They had their manager call me and ask me if I would join them in Germany. That was the first stop. And I don't know how much of this I put in there, but I could write half a book just on that trip because it was, whew, wow. Well, Joey D, for those who don't know, Joey D had a massive hit, speaking of the twist, called The Peppermint Twist, coming out of the Peppermint Club or the Peppermint Lounge, right? And the tour that you're talking about in Germany, who opened the tour for you, Philip? Well, you know, as I'm just starting and I'm you know, a young kid and I'm here. I mean, they were older than they were grownups, you know, compared to me. And we go into this club that we didn't really have much time to rehearse anyway. I had to learn the repertoire by myself. And everybody's yelling and screaming and hollering. And I said, wait, 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 what happened here? What is it? Is it a fire? Is it, what is this? And it was, oh, it's the Beatles. I said, the what? The Beatles. And no one in America had heard them yet. They were still European until probably the next year when Sullivan put them on. But I heard this group, you know, and I said, wow. I mean, I tried to hear them with all the screaming. First, you know, they had long hair. And, you know, I've said it before, but I mean, I was list trying to listen to them and I'm saying, wow, they, they sound real, more like a singing group, you know, because their harmony was good, you know, and they had three parts, three people singing. And their musicianship was interesting. 
Because, with all due respect, when they did what I was listening to, which was that wonderful label you're representing, Atlantic product, that's the real thing. So when they were playing the R&B, eh, they were okay, you know? They were all right, you know? But uh, when they played their music, something just kind of resonated, and not just with me, but with the whole room. Not too long after that, with the whole world. It was just very, very interesting, you know, because they would do things, I don't know if you can hear this, but they would do like... A, They would, they would change it so that it really wasn't like that rhythm that I was used to listening to the Fats Domino guys. But it was just... And I said, what? What is that, man? That's so cool. And it was, I want to hold your hand. And it was, love me do. You know? And you're just listening and saying, wow. And that's when inside of my head I said, you know what, man? I think I could have a good time doing this. Right. I think I could do this. Right, right. That's what turned me. I said, yeah, it's not like, you know, I'm listening to Paderewski. You know what I'm saying? It's not like I'm listening to something that's impossible. You know, little right. did I know of their songwriting acumen, which was like friggin' incredible. But we didn't know that in those days. Did, you, that's have, what did you have a chance to meet them then oh, and yeah. strike up a friendship? Well, friendship with Beatles is very difficult. Because, you know, seriously, I had a chance to meet them because my soon-to-be manager, Sid Bernstein, brought them to the United States. He brought them for the first Ed Sullivan trip, and he brought them for the Shea Stadium trip. Right. And this is where, I don't know, if again, if this is in the book, but uh, what, what happened is he would have a press conference. And Sid Bernstein was his name, and rest his soul, I don't know if you know Sid. Sid was from the old school. The old school is, I don't care what you say about me, just mention my name. <laughs> no, no such thing as bad press. Exactly. So they did a press conference, they meaning the Beatles. And what Sid did is he loaded the audience with rascal questions. <laughs> <laughs> now, there was no rascals yet. But after the third or fourth question, John, you know, who was very, very, very sharp, you know, John he said, aha, I see what's going on here, you know. <laughs> And I'm like trying, oh, maybe, maybe I can get under my chair, you know, because, you know, it's embarrassing because it was obvious what he was doing, you know, but that's that's the old school. That's how totally, they did it. Totally. Let's talk about the formation of the band and how yeah. you met the guys, Eddie, Dino, and Gene. So the story chronologically where we're in Germany, you're part of Joey D and the Starlighters, and then you come back and you move to Vegas before you have to go and register for the draft, you are ruled ineligible to serve. You go back to Joey D and the Starlighters, and that's where you met some of the guys. Yeah, Joey started a club in New York, and he had a band in the club that he wanted to be the house band. And in the band was Gene Cornish, who had come from Rochester, New York, with a group called the Unbeatables to see if he could make it in the big time. And it didn't kind of work out, so he took a job there. And then Eddie Brigatti, whose brother was an original Starlighter, David, was working in this band. And I had just met Eddie a few times. I had not really sang with him or anything. I just heard him sing a few times. And there was another drummer, which is interesting, you know. The other drummer, you know, as you said, after the United States decided that I was unfit for consumption, you know, they said, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll call you if... if I said, well, now it's time for kind of like bit serious because there's no sense starting anything business-wise or group-wise if you're going to get drafted and pulled away for a couple of years. But when that was alleviated from my life, then I said, hey, what do you think if we 
get together and try this on our own. I've got a couple of ideas that I think would work, you know. The drummer didn't want to go. He didn't want to come with us. He had a steady job offered to him, again, at the Peppermint Lounge, interesting enough, with a band that was a little bit more established as far as, like, you know, they worked all the time in that place. And then I met this drummer by the name of Dino Donnelly. And that was another magical event because he worked in a place called the Metropole, which was a place on 7th Avenue, 7th or 8th. And basically it was, a, you could look in the storefront in the window and you could see the band playing. And this place had been primarily a jazz shop. So the people who went in there, like Louis Belsom, Buddy Rich, and Gene Krupa, they were like drum leaders of their band. So not only did they play excellent drums, but they put on a show. Mm. Well, I had never seen a rock and roll musician and the drums put on a show, you know. But Dino Donnelli put on a show. I mean, he really, really was responsible for a lot of the people, you know, like that have followed to twirl sticks and to throw them up in the air and catch him and right on the beat. It was, it was just great. So I asked him if he would join a band. And I'm leaving a little part of the story out because he also came to Vegas with me, but we started it. And literally, we had a deal within six months. Well, how did the band get the name The Rascals? I read that there are a bunch of different, you know, you talk about ask four different people a question, you get four different answers. Exactly. But I think if I had to choose one, but my personal favorite would be, what was Soupy's sales involvement with naming the That's band? That's the best one. That's the best story. <laughs> Soupy, you know, we were such fans. I don't know if you were part of that world, but there was a silly show bus, you know, Soupy Sales uh, had that, I don't know, it was a kid's show, but the adults loved it. And you know what? He's one of the most charming human beings I've ever met in my life. It was also, Soupy's TV show was very subversive at the time because he would say, <laughs> even though it was a kid's TV show, he would say, hey, kids, go to your parents' pocketbooks and take that green money, that green piece of paper that has the old men on it and send it to your pal Soupy, right? He was, he was something else. <laughs> he, he got in trouble for that. <laughs> he also had a hit song called The Mouse. Well, that's why we met him. You see, that's in the book. I highlight this all in the book, you know, because we said, we, we, we got to get discovered. How, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We hadn't gone to the bar. We hadn't met, you know, Sid yet. And so we walk into WNEW TV and we had a meeting with him. And immediately he started on us. Okay, everybody, grab your wallets. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we started laughing, you know. And then we told him, Super, you know, you got a big hit record out there, you know. It's a two-sided hit. Bahalafica and the, the Mouse. You need a band. And he started fooling around. He goes, you mean all these years I've been without a band? I didn't know. I didn't realize. I, and we're laughing again. So he says, you know, this could work out because sometimes I work and nobody laughs. I can count on you guys to laugh, right? <laughs> I, no, no. We just hit it off. We didn't have a name at the time. You know, we kept looking for names. And I'm going to give him credit for giving us the name because he said, you know, what I want to call you, we can't print. <laughs> <laughs> but you little rascals, you rascals, you, you know. And so that's how I remember us getting the name because we were searching and searching and searching for a name. It's, it's really hard to get a name, you know. You know, one thing that people don't realize about the Rascals early on, you know, you talk about Dino on drums and Gene on guitar and Eddie singing and you on the organ and singing. There's no bass player. And right. going back to what you said about walking into that club, 
and seeing the organ group, you know, the bass parts were supplied for the most part by you. Right. Yeah, until we hit Atlantic, you know, basically <laughs> our first L album. Well, you see, also at that time, what was happening now, thanks to geniuses like Tom Dowd <laughs> and these people, stereo was now coming into being. Right, you know, this, right. This is how freaking long ago it right. was. The sound was getting a little bit more refined. And with Hammond organ bass sound, even though we tried to change it so that we could eliminate some of, as I said, the Leslie, it still didn't sound like a bass. You know, it still didn't sound. And so another genius that you all had on staff there yes, sir. came in. He said, there's a band here that, you know, like, I think, you know, maybe you would like to hear there. Somebody that, it was King Curtis's band. Right. Now, I don't know how many people of you know King Curtis, but if you don't, there's a legacy that Atlantic, they got him in the Atlantic Hall of Fame yes, for sir. sure. Yes, Absolutely. Sir. Well, his band was just, just at that level. So this gentleman came in the room by the name of Chuck Rainey. Bass player. Forget it. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, my God, look at this. So Chuck Rainey joined the recording oh. sessions for the first album. But, oh. but we're getting ahead of ourselves. I still want to talk about how the band went out to the Hamptons and how oh, the Hamptons sure, yeah. gigs led to meeting yeah. Sid and Walter. You want to talk about that? Sure. We got an offer. We had just started, as I say, we were working in New Jersey. And I think it was maybe our second or third week there or something like that. And gentleman came in from a discotheque by the name of Undine's, which was a famous place in the discotheque days. It was very, it was up on the east side. And he said, I have an idea. I'd like to have you and your band here come to be the house band in the Hamptons at this place called The Barge. Well, I grew up, you know, in Westchester County. So I knew about the Hamptons. I knew who went to the Hamptons. I knew it was like a summer haven for all the record execs and, you know, movie stars and people who could afford to be out there. And I just knew that this is where we're going to get discovered. If we're ever going to get discovered, this is the place. And it was. And that's exactly what happened. A fellow came out there by the name of Walter Hyman. He was a textile mogul. And he saw us. He saw the commotion that we were making at this place. A lot of people were coming in and it was a hit place. And he called up his friend Sid Bernstein. And so Sid came into the room, and again, our life changed immediately. Immediately, our salary doubled, let's put it like that, because he went up to the proprietors and he said, you know, they're not coming to see your place, they're coming to see these kids. And they started bringing in record executive, record companies. And that's when it really, really, really became interesting, because I was always a huge, huge admirer of Phil Spector. Phil came in, and... God, I didn't know what to say. He wanted to sign us. And I, I turned around and I said to the guys, I said, man, I don't want to go with Phil. I don't want to sound like Phil. I want to sound like us. And they started kicking me under the table. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. People are coming in here. They like what they hear. Let's give it a shot. We can produce ourselves. Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, here's where I start doing accolades. The only label that would give us that shot was Atlantic. And Atlantic gave you creative control, so you wouldn't have to worry about somebody like Phil Spector foisting his production style, that wall of sound production style, on your sound. What you were realizing watching the crowds at the barge in the Hamptons was that 
you would play, they would get up and dance. The club owners loved it because if they danced, they would work up a thirst. They would have to go buy drinks at the bar. And that's every club owner's dream is to have a band that keeps the people happy and moving, right? Yeah, they're really not much in the we like your creativity department. (laughs) But, you know, it's a great story. I mean, like I said, I'm so proud. But I cannot say what a thrill it was (laughs) to be on the red and black label, man. Forget it. Well, you talk about signing to Atlantic. And even though you had creative control, which means that you can produce your own records, you had the creative assistance of two of the most genius music (laughs) people of all time in Arif Martin and Tom Dowd. Tom Dowd, who is pretty much responsible for inventing multi-track recording, Arif Martin, one of the greatest record producers of all time, the other member of the Atlantic Holy Trinity, who you haven't mentioned yet, was Jerry Wexler, but we'll talk about him. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he kind of ran the shop and didn't run it as a friendly proprietor sometimes. But, you know, talk about how the Rascals became the Young Rascals and then back to the Rascals again. Well, that's a story that comes from like a, just a mistake because what happened is we were traveling because our second single came out, which is Good Lovin', which was, you know, the big, big mega hit. Those days you had to go to uh, the West Coast as well as the East Coast to consolidate your radio play to have a really big hit. So we were just on our first West Coast trip to the Whiskey Go-Go and Sid calls up and he said, you know, lads, I had to change the name. Well, there was another group that had a copyright for the name Rascals. It was called the Harmonica Rascals. And we're really going back now. We're going back to Milton Berle's show, you know? (laughs) So I put I, meaning Sid, put the word young in. And I said, wait a minute, man. You know, hold on. You know, seriously. You got to ask us about a name, man. I mean, that's very, it's like saying, what should I name my first kid? Well, why don't you call him what I think? No, 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 (laughs) no, no, no. So, you know, I tell it now because, you know, like I've got a very optimistic personality. What happened is as a result of that, these people would come to my house and say, did that dog really have a circle around his eyes? Right, rascals, young rascals, little rascals, you know, what does it matter? So basically when we had a hit, all of a sudden now, you know, we grew about maybe 12 inches, 13 inches. You know, we were much taller, you know, (laughs) we said the hell with this. We're going to get rid of it. Right. Now, that may have been a mistake because, you know, the audiences, they grab onto a name, they grab onto a sound. I don't know, but I didn't like the name. <laughs> well, the name may have changed, but the music didn't, you know. No, the music didn't. Going back to the nights that you spent as the house band at the Barge, your first album was all covers. It was basically your live set as a bar band. Correct. And I love the story about Good Lovin' because Good Lovin' was a cover. And the more I read about it in your book, it's almost like you were your own A&R guy because you went out into the bins of the record stores and you found this 45 by an R&B group called The Olympics. And you said, you know what? This would sound pretty good if we do it live. And when you did it live at the barge, people got up and danced.
Yeah, that was the way the clubs demanded it in those days. They were 21 and over. They really did not want to hear any aesthetic opportunities from us. They wanted to hear hit records, cover records. But Good Lovin' wasn't a hit. It was a song well, that I, you heard that you thought could work for your band. Like I say, I would actually go buy the 45. I would go to New Rochelle, buy the 45, and show the owner, look, this, 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 is, this is the record, man. You know, we didn't make this up. Right. But that's the interesting part of this story because we found that. We found Mustang Sally. Right. We found that. What else did I find? Oh, Temptation's About to Get Me. I found all these great, great songs. And here's the interesting thing. Now, when we're, when we're doing this, Tommy Dowd came out to record a live album, Okay. Well, that's how Good Lovin' became, you know, because he saw the audience reaction. So when we recorded that, but he also heard all these other songs. Now, thanks, Sally, we would do like a na 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 na. Gave Walter Wilson Pickett. I said, wait a minute, man, what are you doing? Those are our ideas, right. you know. And of course, Wilson had smash hits. With oh, Walter. I didn't know that. So, oh, I know, I know, I know. Wow. <laughs> so Tom Dowd heard you guys do the cover of Mustang Sally, and then suggested it to Pickett to do it. And also, you know, Land of a Thousand Dances. You should have gotten paid as an A&R guy, Felix. Oh, are you kidding? I was cracking up. Because, you know, Wilson, rest his soul, Ben, he was a character and a half. He used to get angry all the time at us. Yeah, Brascals, man, they all stay at the studio every day, man. I can't get near the place. There's a great photograph in our hallways here at Atlantic Records of Wilson Pickett performing, and it looks like he's mesmerizing the place almost to the point where you don't realize the guy next to him in the picture playing guitar is Jimi Hendrix. Wilson was good, man. He was really, he was so powerful, man. Like, come on, oh, man, he was good. But, you know, he was a trouble guy, too, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. Those guys, they had a tough time. Totally. You know, getting yeah. back to Tom Dowd, I love the story in the book where you wanted to keep retracking Good Lovin', and he wouldn't let you. Nope. No, he said, he put his arms around the board, and he said, you're going to have to go through me to touch this mix. Right. <laughs> you know? He's like, that's, that's a smash. You're not touching it. See, but that's what I learned from Marif and Tom, you know, because with all due respect, you know, like playing live and then playing for a recording, it's a different technique. It's a different set of rules. Well, Tom was on almost every Atlantic record that I bought was either mixed or, you know, engineered by Tom Dowd. Yep. And so I'm going to tell him what to do. I mean, I, I knew who he was. Believe me, when I walked through that door, I knew. And Arif was a different story. Arif at that time, was an A&R guy. He right. was, you know, he was not a producer yet. And so we were one of his first kind of projects. And it was really just like the same as the Beatles who had George Martin. Yep. Arif was incredibly talented. You know, it was... So I, gifted. I, it was, so gifted. I, not only in a musical sense that I learned from him, but... As a human being. Been, absolutely. And, you know, he could have been with the United Nations because he knew how to deal with crazy kids, man. He, <laughs> I mean, he just was so calm, man, and he never get riled up, you know. And I remember you know, he, towards the yeah. end of his life where I had some interaction with him as a record producer, and I have never met someone who was as much of a gentleman as Arif Martin. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And so now when you're a young kid coming in, you say, well, okay, now if you produce, this is how you should produce. You should produce with respect for the artist, you know, not look down on them. Right. You know, especially because— right. We drove them crazy. I mean, you know, like, Eddie used to call them, you know, like, 
calm down, calm down. No, calm down, calm down, calm down. Right, that's funny. I mean, we had a ball in there. You know, Arif was so integral part of our music making. You know, Tommy left after a while because he went on to greater things. He went on to become more of a producer rather than an engineer. Well, some of the records that Tom Dowd ended up producing, both for Atlantic and after Atlantic, are some of the most famous recordings of all time. All the Rod Stewart records, all the Allman Brothers records, Derek and the Dominoes, Layla. I mean, it's crazy. And we'll talk about Arif in a second, but getting back to Good Lovin', Good Lovin', your recorded version of Good Lovin' has one of the most famous count-offs of all time, the one, two, three, I didn't realize until I was studying up on our interview for today that the one, two, three, each of the three guys is saying yeah. a different number. How did that happen? It just, you know, it was an idea. You know, you got to create excitement on stage, you know, and so that was one way. But one, two, three. One, two, three. Good luck. Good luck. So Eddie was one, Gene was two, and you were three, right? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I but, do them all now, so, but, yeah, I think so. But that was your lead vocal on Good Lovin'. So if yes. you were saying three, you went right into the, I was feeling, right? Right. But let me tell you a little story about this. See, and you know from Tom Dowd's documentary that he was a very, very uh, initial in, in stereo. Right. Stereo recording. Right. Right. John F.K. used to fly him down to D.C. to do press conferences right. in stereo because he was a pioneer. Well, stereo was just coming in, you see? Now, the radio stations, you know, they played, those days mostly AM, they played mono. Right. So they came up with this format where the first side of the Good Lovin' was mono, and then we mixed again in, in stereo. stereo. Mm -hmm. And they were supposed to have a needle at the radio station. <laughs> so sometimes you hear one, three. Because <laughs> <laughs> no one except Tom really knew how to mix stereo. There was no such, you know, there right. was no such rule. Right. It was all learning, you know, and those that know what you know what you have to do now. You have to make it like, you know, like you're in a concert and you're listening to the left side and the right side and the center. The center is where the sound comes, like in your TV. Right. You know, what's so interesting about the music of the Rascals and the time that the Rascals became popular is comparable to our friend Tommy James, who started as AM mono, ended as FM, stereo. I read that it was A Beautiful Morning, which was one of the earliest recordings to be released as a 7-inch 45 in stereo. That yeah. and Hello, I Love You by The Doors are considered to be two of the first 7-inch 45s to be mixed in stereo. I did not know that, yeah. Yeah, which is fascinating because when you think of the tectonic shift between AM radio and FM radio. AM was a singles format. FM was an album format, which you later gravitated towards with your concept albums, you know, Once Upon a Dream and Freedom Suite. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about some of the hits that the Rascals had at Atlantic. We talked about Good Lovin'. How Can I Be Sure was a big hit with Eddie's lead vocal. You Better Run, a song that you wrote from personal experience about a relationship, later famously covered by Pat Benatar in 1980. And now let's talk about Groovin, because Groovin had a different feel. It was less rock, quote-unquote, and more of an Afro-Cuban groove, which probably to somebody like Jerry Wexler, who was running Atlantic at the time, didn't really seem like it made sense. Tell us about Murray the K talking to Wex about Groovin. Well, you know, living and growing up near New York City, you know, we have a humongous Latin community there. You know, I mean, basically, Latin music, for those who may have not explored it, 
is pretty darn good, man. When you go to a concert for a Latin band, it's an orchestra. It's not just a two or three piece section. They really rock out. And, you know, again, those months that I stayed at the Catskills, they had a lot of Latin bands up there. Really, really hot players come from Cuba, Puerto Rico. So I put this song together and I remember, you know, we were in a different studio. We were not at the Atlantic studio. And Murray happened to be there while we were doing Groovin', you know. And he was in the booth and he, and he said, man, this is great. This is great. This is great. Well, Jerry, <laughs> Jerry, you know, Jerry had a mind of his own, obviously. You know, he's in charge of a label. He's, he was a, a decision maker. And I understand. I mean, a friend of mine wrote a song. It was called, It's Not the Money, It's the Money. I understand. Man. I get it. You know, I get it. So he gave me a hard time, you know. And Murray happened to, you know, be there. He came in and he said, look, Jerry, I'll put this on the radio today. And Jerry said, I knew I liked that one. <laughs> Life would be ecstasy, you and me endlessly. On a Sunday afternoon. The other thing that was different about Groovin musically was it wasn't a regular drum track. It was congas. So, that's that's yeah. what he didn't like. Exactly. He right. said, you're a rock band. I, what happened? Well, Dino played that conga with sticks. You know, he played it. Right. You know, it worked. It worked very well. Where did the birds chirping come from? Oh, well, you see, it's so many stories to go with this. We used to put a mic up. Arif used to have a good time in the studio with us. I mean, you know, like we put a mic up and the Brigati brothers we let them just go out there and do sounds. And they would do sounds like, for example, those birds. They would do like elephants. So that wasn't actually real birds? That's Eddie and his brother David sounding and, like birds? And, and Arif would go out there and do a cow. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, we had a freaking ball, which is why Wilson was so ticked at us because, you know, we lived there. Yeah, those, those are those guys. And they really did it well, you know. Uh, I think one of the reasons that Groovin works so well is also the lyric content, where you guys are musicians, and Friday night and Saturday night, you're out working. So Sunday afternoon is really the only time that you have to spend with the family. Well, and your girlfriend. It was more geared toward the girlfriend, you know, because musicians work on Friday, Saturday. Do you know a woman that likes that? No, there are none. You know, because that's their nights, and they can't go out because you're out working. And I use that because... That's not work, man. That's that's a joy. <laughs> right. Right. And so the grooving on a Sunday afternoon became the theme song to those who couldn't be having time with the girlfriend on Friday night and Saturday night. And it's still a big day in the park, you know, for a lot of us. Of course. You, you talk park. about performing that song in Puerto Rico and the Rascals became the first American rock group to play Puerto Rico. The first American of note, yes. And that's another trip that we'll never forget because we were at the Hiram Bithorn Stadium, which was kind of like a place where the bullfighters yep. you know, would go. And before the concert, they put us in like a, a convertible, drove us around the crowd. Ole, ole! Yeah, that was fun, man. <laughs> that was fun. And a lot of really interesting, famous musicians were there at that show. And I had many people tell me that, you know, they actually were inspired, just like I was inspired by the Beatles right. to go out and be musicians as a result of that show. Well, you're paying it forward with your music, you know, Maybe. and 
Speaking of paying it forward, you then wrote a song inspired by the assassinations of Martin Luther King and and Bobby Kennedy in 1968, a song that Bruce Springsteen has called the definitive song of its time. Talk about People Gotta Be Free. Yeah, well, that's interesting, you know, because he was working for Robert Kennedy's campaign. And just like today and any day, when you're involved in a campaign, you're pretty avid, you know, you're pretty enthusiastic. And, you know, we were exceptionally enthusiastic in those days about changing the world, which we were all trying to do. And I was seeing this young lady, actually, matter of fact, who was out there at the assassination. She was actually at that hotel out there in L.A., and I was away from home, and I had a shortwave radio, and I heard about this horrible assassination. And I don't know, it just rang a bell, and I said, oh, man, wow, got to say something. And, you know, like, boy, I feel the same way today with what's going on in our world. You know, we, we got to say something here. Gotta Be Free has such an iconic horn line. Who did the horn arrangements? Well, you know, that's how we did most of our things. You know, like I had an idea for a horn and I would go to Arif's home. He, at that time, he lived in Pelham for a brief time and we sit down and he orchestrated. So I'd say we collaborated on most of the things. You know, he just enhanced whatever I came up with. Right, which is the sign of a great record producer. You know, like I say, your idea, but let me show you what you can do with your idea. Right, you like, right. And who were the actual horn players? Oh, I don't remember. But don't forget, we had the whole, you know, Lincoln Center people available to us right. there. They loved coming in to play, and, and I enjoyed having them. We had some of the Saturday Night Live people, yep. you know, of course. Yeah, the, the musicianship in New York City, now it's a little different. You know, we have that down here in Nashville, but it was unique at that time, no question about it. Well, People Gotta Be Free is such an important song in that it says something. It's meaningful. You know, and people may not realize that civil rights was such an important cause to you. You insisted on diversity when you were out touring. The Rascals would insist on diversity in your tour openers. Yeah, and that came about as a result of Young Holt Trio. We were down someplace working and this group they had a hit i think it was grazing in the grass if i'm not mistaken it's one of these things and they were a black group but they weren't really a black group they were more of a pop group you know kind of like the fifth dimension turned out to be you know because they may have been black but they sure did a lot of great pop hits you know including people got to be free and they came backstage and they said felix man thank you for having us on this show you know we don't really get a chance to play in front of like the white audiences and I said, you know what, man? We don't get a chance to play in front of the black audiences. Why not? Well, let's make it a point to have an opening act. Right. Well, I had no idea the can of worms I was opening up. Here is 2022, and I, I think I still have an idea of the can of worms I opened up. Are right. you kidding me? You know, because those days the radio stations, they played everything. You know, they mixed the Motown with Tommy James and everybody, and Peter, Paul, and Mary was on. You know, they played everything. And then, of course, that changed considerably when the corporate structure came in, which is another story. Right. That's what was the idea. Let's mix and mingle. And come on, man, we love to play. We want to play. For, when we had a major hit, it's because Atlantic promoted us in the black stations. That's why. Right. And, you know, you ran headfirst into the racism of some of the promoters back then who wouldn't agree to it. They wouldn't do it. 
Probably still won't do it. Yeah. The last of the smashes that the Rascals had was A Beautiful Morning. Talk about how you wrote that, actually seeing one of the most beautiful mornings you had ever seen in Hawaii. Well, you know, the word bliss comes into being right around then. I mean, you know, seriously, you're in Hawaii where the Rascals were just immense. We were very, very big in Hawaii because of the fact that, uh, long story, but there's some DJs out there that that made us that way. They they loved the R&B flavor sung by white people. It was great, you know. And I was madly in love at that time. Most of those songs were about a young lady that I met. And uh, it was just like, well, you know, the world's pretty good pretty good. I just recently got involved with a guru and uh, I was smiling from ear to ear. And I said, no, how about if, you know, if we put this feeling in a song and it worked because that feeling is captured in a beautiful morning. It's a beautiful morning. It's so iconic. I mean, all of these songs that we're talking about, you know, you write in the book how some of them have become TV commercials, and it's the gift that keeps giving 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. These songs are so iconic. Before we move on to after the Atlantic years, in the book, you write about how great it felt to record in the Atlantic studios, which is what you were talking about. Felix, guess where we're recording from today? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's very interesting that a lot of the places that made a lot of the music that we grew up and listened to are no longer studios. Yeah. It's gone. You know, when you walk into Atlantic Studio and you realize the history that took place right where you were. Yeah. Uh, phew. You know, it's something that as A&R people now in 2022, we take very seriously. I mean, this is the label. This is the label of Amit. This is the label of Wex. This is the label of Arif and and Tom Dowd. And we take that very, very seriously. Well, that's good, you know, because seriously, I mean, you know, those collections that you all have, those major releases of the history of... uh, Sure. You know, there's a museum down here that just opened up called the Afro-American Museum. Yeah, I hear it's amazing. And you walk through the aisles and, you know, they did it by time periods, you know. And I said, man, I know all these people, man. They were all Atlantic Records artists, you know. Right. I was so proud, seriously, to be on that label. (laughs) Well, and the label is proud to have you guys as some of the most iconic musicians to be signed back then. People may not remember you were the first band signed to Atlantic. You were the yeah. first white group signed to Atlantic. You know, Sonny and Cher and Bobby Darren were on ATCO, yeah. but on Atlantic, the yeah. Rascals were proved to be a lot of firsts as well. Well, that's the Otis Redding statement that <laughs> was in the book, you know. It's too bad Otis could not be on your show because man, he, was a, he was a hoot. We had Steve yeah. Cropper, so that's as close as we're probably going to get to Otis. Yeah. But because Otis, he used to call Amit an omelet. You know, I love what you say in your book about recording at the Atlantic Studios because the offices were in the same place. And if you guys had a hot record, before you know it, the secretaries were all dancing, their bosses were in the studio dancing, and it was a party. 
you know, they can say what they want about the, you know, the business part of the business. And, you know, like, I, I don't even talk about it. They were a music label. Still are, hopefully. Still are. I mean, they wanted to make good music. Yeah. And I learned their philosophy, you know, which is basically kind of like a different thing, really based on the fact of, like, let's capture it in the room. Yeah. You know, rather than overdub. Yeah, totally. And so that philosophy, you know, nowadays you can overdub till you've ruined the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we sometimes talk about mixing the hit out of a record. And that's something that Tom Dow would not let you do with Good Lovin'. No, no, not only Good Lovin', but I mean, like I said, I learned a lot. I just watched him. I watched everything he did, you know. And, you know, when you have a master class like that, you know, you you should take advantage of it. A hundred percent. There's not many people. I mean, we have people like, what do you call it? Ray, Ray Dalby come in the room, you know? These wow. People are like, legendary. Come on. I remember them bringing equipment in from uh, some of the manufacturers, even Tide, and, you know, they would, they would, hey, try this. What is it? I don't know. Try it. <laughs> <laughs> those, those were really, really pregnant years of innovation, not only music, but in sound. Right. You know, it was great to be there. I don't know if I mentioned it, but... Atlantic just gave us, like, this is if you had a garden, you know, and the soil was all tilled, and all you had to do was go in there and bring a couple of seeds, musical seeds. And right, just go, right. Put them in that garden, and oh my God, look at this. It was a great, it was a <laughs> great, co- it was a great combination of musicians and place, you know. No doubt. You mentioned before, Felix, about writing A Beautiful Morning, how there was a lot of bliss in your life, and a lot of the bliss was coming from your indoctrination into Eastern philosophy, which started when you lost your mom, Laura, when you were 13 years old, actually on your 13th birthday from cancer. Talk about meeting your guru. Well, I had just finished reading a book called Autobiography of a Yogi, uh, which was a, a magical mystery tour to me because... The difference between, you know, American, Western culture in, for example, the religious world and uh, the culture that was described in this book was really like going to another universe. And it's a story about how somebody became a monk. And, you know, I mean, I could tell you the beginning because I don't think I put this in their book. But the gentleman who wrote his, his name was Paramahansa Yogananda. And he starts the book off by saying, I remember feeling so helpless because my tongue wouldn't work. He was, what, one? <laughs> you know? So he had consciousness immediately wow. when he came out of the womb. Wow. I remember my tongue wouldn't form the <laughs> And by the time I got to the end of the book, I was really, like, enamored with whatever it was that they were espousing, what they were teaching. And it said, if you want a teacher, in this case they call it a guru, yes, which is a very, very important term, Ask, and he'll come. And there was a fellow by the name of Steve Paul who had a club in New York called The Scene. And The Scene was a place where Jimi Hendrix would go and Tiny Tim would be and Jose Feliciano would go. It was like a little hip kind of place that was always getting in trouble financially, so he would call the rascals. Velvet Underground were there. He had a television show offered to him, a pilot. And to make a long story short, because as I say, it's in the book... At that pilot, he asked us to come in and, you know, make an appearance so that he could get the uh, television series. That's where I met and saw the guru, Swami Satchidananda. And he really changed your life. Well, yeah, he changed my life in more ways than one because of so many reasons. I mean, let's take from a health point of view, you know, like I'm about to approach the big 8-0 and still rocking and rolling, man. 
My body's still working. Thank God. My voice is still working. My limbs are still working. And you know what? It's because you get involved in health, mental, physical, and spiritual. And if I can say anything about that, that's important. And he played a big part in your life all the way up until his death in 2002 at the age of 90. You called him, was it Swamiji? Well, that's a term of endearment. You know, Swami is the title. Swamiji is like just more like intimate, more like friendly, you know, still respect, but still it's an endearing term. And I didn't realize that your Swami actually opened Woodstock. Correct. And if you go on YouTube, you can see him talking to these hundreds of thousands of kids to kind of calm them down, the calm before the (laughs) storm, as it were. Yeah, see, that also interplays with uh, my relationship with Jimi Hendrix, you know, like, because we had the same attorney, and he called me up and he said, man, can you take Jimmy over to meet Swami because I'm a little worried about him, you know, try to get him over there to a healthier way of life, you know. He made a big impact on a lot of people. I think he made a lot of impact when he opened up that show because his presence was so uniquely, dynamically, mm. energetic, yeah. in a positive way. So from bliss back to painful reality, talk about how the band broke up, Felix. Well, this was a kind of a strange thing that, you know, I still, Eddie had kind of been unhappy and he quit a few times. When he actually left was when we were making a transition from Atlantic to Columbia. And at the contract signing, he just decided that he didn't want to be part of this new venture. And I just wish he had been a little more gentle about it, you know. Hey, instead of me signing this multi-million dollar deal, I'm going to walk out. And he left. And it just was a big blow, obviously, because we had a good team, you know. I mean, the Rascals was a good band. It was not perfect, but the thing is that it worked together as a unit very, very, very well. And there was a magic there that sometimes you can't reproduce just by getting all-stars on your team, you know. But that's how it broke up. I mean, he decided to leave for whatever reasons. I don't really know. I think that people should realize there's a major commitment to being in a rock and roll band and being part of the writing team and being part of the performing team. And, you know, you mentioned all those albums between those those five years. We did two albums a year just about. I mean, we worked because that was the case prior to like people like Billy Joel coming along and saying, you know, like I'm doing one album in the three-year period. And that didn't happen. You worked. The Beatles did a lot of albums as well. So I don't know. Maybe he got worn out. I don't know. Maybe he didn't like the direction we were going in. I don't know. But it's interesting when you think about the politics of a band. You guys started so young. The hits came so quickly. You probably think you're just like a family. But are you? Well, good question. Yeah, we probably think we're just like a family, but are we? Yeah, unfortunately, I guess we're not, you know. A lot of times, I think people who lose a parent, they look for a family wherever they can find them, right. you know. Right, But you see, the thing is, we really did have a tremendous, tremendous relationship with each other's families. We would share some of the holidays together. We would share some of the trips together, especially Hawaii. It was wonderful, really was wonderful. That's why when it ended the way it ended, and unfortunately, you know, I can't say that the end of that service is, <laughs> is behind us. It's just a shame. I mean, I'm really saddened by it because, you know, these are my brothers. You right. know, we had tremendous success together. Well, you, made, you made history. Great history. And, you know, like, I just don't understand, but I do understand. I really understand a lot more because, again, we go back to the guru. You right. Know? 
When the guru starts talking to you, the first thing he tells you is kind of like the Kabbalah. Kabbalah, you know, they talk about ego being the right. enemy. Well, the ending of your book, I actually made a note where you actually give the readership a message to end the book and you talk about ego. And if I can quote from the book, you say, get rid of ego and you become part of the universal truth and everything works out the way it's supposed to work out. Yeah. I think Rolling Stone said you can't always get what you want. <laughs> you get what you right, need. Right. You know, so many of these tenets uh, were floating around in the 60s because of the, of the searching that our people, our peers, we were really searching. You know, we were searchers. That's one of the places where we looked. We looked to the East, you know, for the so-called wisdom of thousands and thousands of years right. of a being, you know. Right, and that ended up being something very meaningful to you. And like you said, yeah. you know, you're turning 80 later this year, and sound mind, sound body, sound voice, let's go, you know? It's really important, uh, seriously, because two of the guys in the band are, are not so healthy right, right now. You know? Right, You say, well, thank you. I appreciate that, <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that, because of all the bands from that era— I read that the Rascals are one of the earliest successful groups in which all the original members are still alive. Correct. Which is amazing. So after the Rascals, you made some solo albums. Your first one was produced by our friend and former podcast guest, Todd Rundgren. You also went to produce yourself via an introduction from David Geffen. You met Laura Nero. Correct. And everyone who has ever come into contact with Laura Nero, as I've heard it, says that she was one of the most special people that you've ever met. So talk about, you brought in a reef, you made the album Christmas and the Beads of Sweat Together, produced on Laura in 1970. Dwayne Allman played guitar. Talk a little bit about Laura yeah. Nero. Well, you know, David at that time, Giffen, was an agent at the GAC, and he was also a manager. He managed very well, as a matter of fact. Laura, I think he did uh, Joni Mitchell, and I think he did, I think he had Crosby, Stills, and this. But he was obviously a pretty bright man. And he said to me, uh, how would you like to meet the most difficult person you've ever met? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we're looking for a producer for Laura Nero. Well, I was aware of her music, you know, and she was magical. Well, she was not the most difficult person I ever met. Eddie Brigatti was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, bro. How does, anyway, a little humor there. But she, was, she was an absolute doll. I mean, she was like just so wonderfully different from any other human being I ever met. You know, she had ideas of her music. And the part about it that I find, you know, so explanatory about her career is that she had these nuances. And nuances don't play on radio stations. There's certain rules, unwritten rules, that you don't do in songs if you want them on the air. Right. You know, time being one. Fortunately, we had to chop in those days, you know. Right. Edit, it, editing you know. for length, right. As a matter of fact, one time we gave Arif a gold briefcase with a razor in it, you know. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were good at it, Tom. Anyway, now we just... You know, the Pro Tools. Yeah, it's easy. Amazing. 
It's such a different world. But you mentioned that Laura was as oh, God, pure yes. an artist as it came, and she wouldn't make compromises for her music to get on the radio. But that doesn't mean that her songs couldn't right. have been reinterpreted in a more commercial manner by other artists. And just for anyone who doesn't know, the artists who went on to have hits, massive hits, with Laura yes. Nero's copyrights, Barbra Streisand, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Three Dog Night, Fifth Dimension, I mean, goes on and on and on. It goes on and on, you know, because she wouldn't do it. She just, like, you know, Clive Davis was running Columbia, you know, and says, uh, you know, Laura, you know, if you put that name Christmas on the album after the season... They're going to pull it off the shelves. It's gone. It's a Christmas album. Christmas and the beads of sweat. And she said she didn't care. And she said, so I would say to her, you know, some of us would like to make some money. Here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And Arif, too. She loved him, man. She really loved him. It's interesting uh, that in the loved- book you talk about you and Arif formed a production company. Yeah. But unfortunately, he was bound by a contract at Atlantic. Which the one thing you don't write about in the book is I realized a few years ago that not only was he bound by his Atlantic contract and in Atlantic, Amit wouldn't let him out to go do things like that, but they also wouldn't let him continue with the Bee Gees when the Bee Gees left Atlantic to go to RSO. And the Bee Gees ended up making one of the biggest records of all time in Saturday Night Fever, which Arif would have produced if Atlantic had let him out of his contract to do that. Well, you know, that's an inside story. I wasn't inside. I have my outside story. <laughs> and I can give you my outside story. Look, Atlantic was tough. They're tough. Turks are tough. You know? <laughs> and then Jerry was no, like, pushover. They were tough. And they worked him and everybody else there till they couldn't breathe. Right. <laughs> you know? And here's the way I'm going to tell my story. Because, you know what? It's like Tommy. All those people are no longer with us. They can't get mad at me. <laughs> We started a company, we started a production company. I loved working with Arif. Are you kidding me? Wow. You know, I thought I died and went to heaven working with him. And we started a production company, Mevlana Productions. Well, the next thing I know, he became a vice president over there. Aha! Right. Yeah, you don't want to lose him. And that was the end of your production company. That's okay. I mean, like, I was so happy for him, man, because, you know, like, a mensch like that, I cried like a baby when he died. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. So running a little tight on time, but a few things that I want to touch on before we finish up. The covers of the songs that you either wrote or with something like Good Lovin' changed some of the lyrics and changed the arrangement and really put your own spin on it. I don't think the Grateful Dead cover Good Lovin' without the Rascals doing it first. One thing I didn't know before getting ready for today is your song, You Better Run, was recorded in 1966 by a band called Listen. And the original lead singer of Listen in his recording debut was Robert Plant, who later became, you know, iconic Atlantic recording artist as the frontman of Led Zeppelin. Aretha Franklin, another jewel in the crown of the most iconic Atlantic records artist of all time, covered Groovin' on her Lady Soul album in 1968, produced by Jerry Wexler. So we talked about Pat Benatar, The Fifth Dimension, did a great version of People Gotta Be Free in a medley with Change Is Gonna Come, Sam Cooke. So it's kind of paying it forward, the gift that keeps giving. The one thing, as I'm reading the book that I was shocked about because you talk about the dysfunction in the band. Mm. 
Mm. I was like, well, I know that these guys went back to Broadway, you know, in the last decade. With all this dysfunction, how did that happen? These guys, it's like they're not talking to each other. So what led to the reunion and the Once Upon a Dream with little Steven producing on Broadway? You answered it, little Steven. He's a very, very determined human being. And he was determined to make that happen. And he did make that happen. He made that happen because we've had a lot of people over the years try to put the group together to do something. But not like him. <laughs> he was not going to give up, and he did it. And I give him a lot of credit for that because it was a very difficult situation. Why? I don't know. But it was. I mean, I know that I had really difficulty doing it because I just felt that, you know, I've been working so hard, you know, at a solo career. And it's not easy doing a solo career after you follow a group like the Rascals. It's okay. I mean, I, I, I'm happy. I certainly have smiled a lot over the years because I got a great bunch of guys that I work with. I mean, the group that I'm with now have been together 17, 18 years. But he decided, I'm going to make this happen. And you'd have to ask him how he made it happen, because he made it happen. <laughs> That's all I got to say. You know, he gave a great quote when he helped you guys get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So did Phil Spector. But little Steven inducted you. And there's some great anecdotes from the book of the first rock concert that Bruce Springsteen ever attended was a rascal show at a roller skating rink in New Jersey. And at the same show, long before they would meet and become bandmates, little Steven was there. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Little Steven's quoted as saying, some people may not realize it, but the Rascals were the first rock band in the world. And, <laughs> and then one thing, Felix, that I did not know until I read your book is that when Little Steven inducted you and your bandmates of the Rascals into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, there was a television producer watching that night and said, hey, this guy actually could act. He's a really good public speaker. He's got a really good persona. I want to put him in my new TV show. Who was that, Felix? It's called The Sopranos, right? <laughs> so you know, that, that's the thing. Look, you know, there's a relationship there, whether we like it, he likes it or not, that is divine. Whether we like it or not, we're locked together. Thank you very much, Stephen. Yeah, amazing. Another yeah. East Coast musician who you had a major influence on is Billy Joel. And you've played with Billy a bunch of times, and Billy has been quoted as saying the Rascals were the best rock and roll group that he'd ever heard. <laughs> so, you know, it's like we talk about pay it forward and the gift that keeps giving, but the 50-plus years of amazing music by you and your bandmates just continues putting smiles on people's faces and bringing joy. And I would encourage everybody to read your great book out this week, Memoir of a Rascal. Talk about your future plans. You're going on tour with another legend of early days of rock and roll. Yeah, I'm on the way uh, to tour with Mickey Dolenz. So you should all pray for me. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's something else, man. I, I knew all of those monkey people. They, they were great guys, every one of them, seriously. I mean, Davy Jones, one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet. He could do all those English, Irish, Scottish language and more. And Peter, you know, was a Connecticut resident, which I was for many years. And Mike, uh, the last time that I worked with Mike, I never realized the talent that this gentleman so had. So talented. Yeah. Videos. Yeah. But Mickey, he's insane. <laughs> he's <laughs> so, funny. He's talented. And he still carries that same, I believe, the joy of working. And that's why we're hooking up. Right. We really feel it's time for people to smile a little bit, you know. Totally. They're, 
And, you know, their music and our music is, it's uplifting, it's happy. And God, do we need it now, let me tell you. So later this year, everyone should go out and see Felix Cavalieri's Rascals touring with Mickey Dolan's Monkeys. And uh, <laughs> it'll guarantee to put a smile on your face. And I strongly yeah. suggest that everybody go out and pick up a copy of Felix's great book out this week, Memoir of a Rascal, and to go back to your record collection, whether it's analog or digital, and listen to these great songs that were created by Felix and by his bandmates. It's just put a smile on my face, listen. To them. So, Felix, on behalf of Atlantic Records, we thank you for everything and thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Well, Peter, I enjoyed every moment of it. Thank you. And uh, once again, thanks, Atlantic Records. <laughs> we'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks a lot to Felix Cavalieri for joining this week. You can stay connected with Felix at his website, felixcavalierimusic.com, where you can learn about his upcoming live shows with the Rascals and other upcoming events. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.